1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. This is the word of God. Let us hear it. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life, for the life was manifested and we have seen it, and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 2 of chapter 2, and we know that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. If I could call your attention to a statement that is found in verse 4, just the beginning statement there, it says, and these things write we unto you. These things write we unto you. Purpose statements are great things to discover when you're studying a particular book in the Bible. If the student of God's word can discern exactly why a portion of God's word was written, why a book was written, or why one of the gospels was written, or one of the epistles, or what have you, if you can discover that purpose, then the study of God's word, he gains a lens through which he can, he can view that entire portion of scripture, that entire gospel or epistle or whatever you have. I've cited on a number of occasions, usually whenever I'm preaching from the gospel of John, and you will recall, because we have studied the Gospel of John here, and every time I think in every study, I always made reference to that purpose statement that is so clear in John's Gospel. I hope you know the verse. 
It's in John chapter 20 and verse 31, where John writes, but these are written, okay? And now there follows the purpose, the reason why John wrote his gospel. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. John wrote his gospel to convince his readers that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And he wrote it with an aim in view, not merely to persuade his readers, but that they might gain the benefit that comes from being persuaded, which is eternal life by believing in his name. Luke's gospel also comes with a very clear statement of purpose. So we read in Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. So you see there another clear statement of purpose as to why Luke wrote his gospel. I believe that purpose statement in Luke's gospel also carries itself forward into the book of Acts. Since the book of Acts may be, may be and is regarded by some as kind of being Luke's gospel, volume two. We know what was written by Luke. We know what was written to Theophilus, just like the gospel of Luke. Seems the reason that he wrote it for the very same purpose that Theophilus and hence us, the readers of it in ensuing generations, might know the certainty of those things wherein we've been instructed. So these things are valuable, these purpose statements, when we study the Bible. Once we know the purpose for which a book is written, we are ready then to study that book with a question in view. How does the author accomplish that purpose? How does John go about instructing us about Christ being the Son of God? How does Luke show us the certainty of the things in which we've been instructed? Now, not every book in the Bible has such a clear purpose statement as what you find in John's Gospel or Luke's Gospel. Sometimes you have to read and reread a book, and you have to devote time to careful meditation and reflection in order to discern the purpose for which a book is written. You have to do that with the book of Job, for example. Oh, I read that book through many, many times. It was the first book I ever read as a Christian. And I remember somebody told me, if you want to know why Christians suffer, read the book of Job. And so I read it, and when I was done, I had no clue why Christians suffered. Uh, but over many years and many readings of that book, I did come to appreciate what I eventually concluded, which was that the book of Job was written in order to show us as Christians that suffering is a part of being conformed to Jesus Christ. 
Christians will suffer. You don't hear many people put it quite that bluntly, do you? They will suffer, and the reason for that is not hard to discern because our Savior suffered, and we're being conformed to Him. So like I say, some books have clear purpose statements. Other books require contemplation to discern their purpose. The question I want to raise now is this. What about a book in the Bible that is saturated with purpose statements? That's what you find in 1 John, this first letter written by John. Listen to these purpose statements. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 4. These things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. Chapter 5, verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Now, in a similar vein, we find these other statements in chapter 2. These statements don't, uh, I, I suppose, precisely express purpose as much as they express reasons for John's writing. But since the difference between purpose for writing and reasons for writing is only a slight difference, if there's any difference at all, listen to these statements in chapter 2 and verse 12. I write unto you, little children, because, and there's the key phrase there, for a reason for the writing, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Chapter 2, verse 13, I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. Next verse, verse 14, I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. A few verses later, verse 21, still in chapter 2, I have written unto you because... Uh, I have, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, boy, I'm about to mess it up big time here. I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it. And no lie is of the truth. He kind of states that negatively there, doesn't he? And in verse 26, These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. You begin to see what I mean when I say this epistle is saturated with purpose statements or with reasons for which this letter was written. The repeating refrain I have written unto you that, or I have written unto you because. The thought did occur to me while reading through this epistle some while back, that if you recognize that ultimately God himself is the author of this epistle, because all scripture is given by inspiration of God, 
It is true that God used human authors, but it's also true that God so inspired those authors so that they would communicate what God himself would have communicated. Then I don't believe we would be doing injustice to these verses in 1 John by regarding them not merely as purpose statements that governed John's writing to the particular Christians that he addressed long ago, but we may take these statements as expressing the various purposes that God that, that governs God writing the entire Bible to us. Or in other words, these verses can serve to answer a very important question that I want to consider today in the moments that remain. And the question simply put is this, why has God written to us? Why has God written to us? There's no doubt that he has. Like I say, he's the one that inspired the authors. He's the one that has preserved his word why has God written to us? I could express the question, I suppose, another way by asking, what purposes does the Bible serve? Why has God written to us, or what purposes does the gospel serve? And I want to draw from these purpose statements that, uh, are, that I've just referred to in First John, I want to refer to those in order to answer those important questions. Why has God written to us? Well, looking at these statements then that I just cited, let's consider, first of all, God has written to us that our joy may be full. God has written to us that our joy may be full. 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. The very first, I suppose you could say, and that kind of assigns a priority to it. Chapter 1, verse 4, And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Now skeptics may question how a book like the Bible can serve that kind of purpose. That your joy may be full. After all, isn't this a book that reveals what arguably could be called terrible things about God? Don't we have the account in this book of Adam and Eve being driven away from God, from the Garden of Eden? And don't we have the account in this book of the entrance of death into this perfect world that God created? We do have those accounts, and we have much more than that. We have the account of God destroying the world by a universal flood. And we have the fearful account of God descending upon Mount Sinai with fire, the mountain shaking in a very fearful manner. And we see plainly in what God has written that he's the ruler of all nations and he moves with judgment upon the nations in accordance with his will. And what's more, we have the account in this Bible that God has written to us. We have the account of a fearful judgment that's yet to come. 
we have the account of the dead, small and great, standing before God's throne, being judged by their works, being cast into a lake of fire. There are, to be sure, fearful things contained in this book that God has written, and yet we have such a statement as this that we can take as coming directly from God to us, these things have I written, that your joy may be full. Our joy, you see, cannot be full without us being honest and without God being honest with us. Our joy cannot be full without being a joy, in other words, that is based on truth. This is what separates the joy of the Lord from the joy of the world. The joy of the world must be had by suppressing the truth of God or by denying the truth of God. The joy of the world must be gained by accommodating sin. And that is why the world's joy and the world's peace is very shallow and temporal at best. It may bring pleasure to the flesh for a moment, but in the end it leaves the sinner in misery and despair and condemned. And so we find Christ distinguishing between what he gives and what the world gives when he says in John 14 and verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The world's joy or the world's peace may please the flesh, but it can't fulfill the deep needs of one's heart. Nothing in this world can. In order for our joy to be full, therefore, our joy must be based on truth. It must be consistent with the truth. And in that connection, note again the words of 1 John chapter 2, verse 21. I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. The fulfillment of our joy, therefore, comes to us based on the truth, based on the truth of God's character, based on the character of sin, and based on the good news of salvation <coughs> in Jesus Christ. It is true, you see, that we're sinners. It is true that God must and will judge sin. It is true that in our sin, condemnation is what we deserve. But note this purpose statement from 1 John chapter 2 and verse 12. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Forgiven you for his name's sake. You see there another purpose statement, don't you? And this is what fulfills our joy. The knowledge of sins forgiven and that there is a basis for our sins to be forgiven. It's sometimes easy to overlook statements like the statement we find at the end of 1 John 2 and verse 12. Note how it states that your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. 
They're not forgiven simply for your benefit. No, the forgiveness of your sins actually serves a higher purpose than merely your benefit, even though obviously you do benefit tremendously from having your sins forgiven. But there's a higher purpose. Your sins are forgiven, and to my mind, this is what makes the whole thing believable. Your sins are forgiven for His namesake. They're not forgiven simply by God forgetting them. They're forgiven on account of Christ. He is the propitiation for our sins, chapter 2, verse 2. In other words, He bore the wrath of God that was our due. That's the meaning of propitiation. I hope you know that by now. I think I've said that enough times to where you remember it. Propitiation. He bore our wrath. He satisfied divine justice. He took our condemnation to himself. This is the meaning of our sins being forgiven for his namesake. And this is what completes or fulfills our joy. Our sins are forgiven for his namesake. Now would you note with me here the truth, and I'm only stating the obvious when I say this, these things are written. These things are written that your joy may be full. If we're going to gain the benefit then of what has been written to us, then it kind of presupposes, doesn't it, that we are going to read what is written. It will hardly do to write something if, someone, if no one's going to read it, okay? These are written, so we must cultivate the habit of reading what has been written. We cannot establish or maintain our joy if we are not constantly reading what has been written to us. Show me a Christian who is lacking in joy. I'll show you a Christian that in all likelihood is neglecting time reading God's word. Such a Christian has known what the joy of salvation is. He knows the joy that initially filled and thrilled his heart when he gained the knowledge of sins forgiven for Christ's sake. But his joy is little more than a memory to him. He could state and state honestly that he remembers something of the joy of the Lord, but he has nothing in recent recollection in which to remember or know it. He could not say, in other words, that the joy of the Lord is his present experience. He needs, like the psalmist, for that joy to be renewed to him. And here is the means by which God will renew that joy. These things write we unto you that your joy may be full. So we must read what is written. And this is what can keep your joy full. This becomes all the more apparent in the next point I want to consider. We've seen that God has written to us that our joy may be full. Would you consider next that God has written to us that we may maintain communion with him? 
He has written unto us that we may maintain communion with him. Interesting to note in chapter 2 how John breaks down the reasons for the writing of his epistle among three classes of men. He makes reference to little children. Note it in verse 12, chapter 2. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. He also makes reference to fathers in the next verse. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. And then he makes reference to young men. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. So you have these categories, little children, fathers, young men. And if you look at these categories carefully and note what is said exactly to each specific category, then you'll notice that little children have something in common with fathers. And the thing they have in common with fathers is that both know God. Look at how this comes out. Verse 13, I write unto you fathers because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you little children because ye have known the father. I think it would be fair to say that the knowledge of God transcends the ages that are addressed in these verses. In other words, little children, young men, Fathers have this in common. Indeed, all Christians of any age have this in common. They know God. They don't simply know about God. They know God. This is the essence, you know, of salvation and eternal life. The Christian knows God. And this is life eternal, Christ himself says in John 17 and verse 3, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And because you have come to know God by being reconciled to God through Christ, God has written to you. He has written to you so that your knowledge of him may grow, and your communion with him might be constant. This truth comes out very clearly in the opening words of this epistle. I never will forget the first time I saw this and how this puts our use of God's written word in the right perspective. Let's look at it again carefully the opening verses of this epistle, the very beginning, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. Many commentators believe that John is placing a very strong emphasis in these words on the tangibility of Christ here. In other words, he really was a man. There was a philosophy that existed in John's day, still exists today to some degree, which says Jesus Christ could never become a man. 
not a real one, not an actual one, not a physical one. Oh, he may take on what seems to be the appearance of a man, as you have a um, group of um, disciples, for want of a better term, called docetists, from the Greek word to seem. It seems like Christ is a man, but he's not really a man. And the reason he's not a man and never could be a man is because physical matter by its very nature is evil and God would never take something evil to himself. So the reasoning goes. And John is laboring very hard in these opening verses to um, refute that notion that Christ was a phantom man. No, he truly was God come in the flesh. And in order to emphasize this truth all the more, he follows up in the very next verse, verse 2, by saying, for the life was manifested and we have seen it. You see what an emphasis he's placing on that? We've seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. Now the thing to note in these verses is that John is referencing his own experience as well as the experience of the other apostles. It was John and Peter and James and the others that heard and saw and looked upon and handled Christ, the word of life. But notice now that the purpose in John declaring these things is not merely that others might be impressed with John's experience. Look at what verse 3 goes on to say, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship, you see how he is including now those that he's addressing, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things are declared and are declared through writing in order that the ones to whom they are written may enter into this fellowship or this communion. The two words are the same, communion and fellowship with Christ. Do you see now what these verses convey to us about the purpose that the written word of God serves? This is so important this ought to govern your approach to Bible reading and study. God has not written to us to provide us with a history book that gives an impressive account of other men's experiences in the past. He's not providing us simply with a theological textbook. And God has not written to us simply to give us a rule book on what to do and what not to do. It is true that his laws are certainly included in his word. But God has written to us in order that we might have fellowship with him and with Christ. That which we have seen and heard declare 
through writing unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. If I may interject an aside here, it's worth pointing out that the word declare is a word that oftentimes refers to preaching. Preaching is a declaration of the gospel, and preaching, therefore, should say, serve the same purpose as the written word. If I am truly serving God's purpose in preaching this morning, then you should not simply be listening to a lecture, and you should not simply be having information imparted to you through this means of communication, but you should, in fact and in truth, be able to enter into fellowship with God and with Christ even during this part of the worship service. I hope you're in communion with Christ just now during this preaching session, if you will. I'd like to think of worship this way. In our praying and in our singing, God hears from us and in the preaching of God's word and the reading of God's word, we hear from God. And in this fashion, our worship becomes a time of fellowship with each other, but especially a time of fellowship with God and with Christ. Now, wouldn't you agree that puts the Bible in a different light than any other book? If all this book amounts to is a theology textbook or a code of conduct manual, then it need not be a book that you have to read every day, especially if you've read the whole thing through once or twice. But if these things are written because you know God and because God would have you in fellowship with him, then this is not a book that can be set aside to set aside this book, you could say, is to set aside communion with God and with Christ. And it's worth noting here that there is a definite connection between the points I've been making in the study. These things are declared in writing that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and then comes verse 4, And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Do you see the connection? Joy comes through communion with God and with Christ. Joy comes through our speaking to God in prayer, and God speaking back to us through his written word and by his Spirit. And in this fellowship, we hear him saying to our souls that he is our salvation. Oh, it's a blessing to know that God is our salvation, but the blessing is even greater when you hear God himself communicating it to your soul through his word, by his spirit. These two things taken together contribute to our assurance of salvation. And here is yet another purpose statement given to us near the end of this epistle. This is a good one to have, by the way, uh, for witnessing. Have this text ready to hand 
if you're witnessing the people that need the gospel. 1 John 5, 13, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. I can remember years ago when I did door knocking, one of the lines that I would use is this. Do you know that there is a way to know for sure that you have eternal life? You don't have to wonder about it. You don't have to hope so, so to speak. No, there is a way that you can know, and you can know with assurance. John has written this epistle that you might know that you have eternal life. And of course, the key is in believing in Jesus Christ. You see, the assurance that is ministered to us through what God has written, these things have I written that ye may know that ye have eternal life. This verse also shows us how we go from faith to faith. These things have I written unto you that believe that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. So you have faith. Here is how that faith is maintained. Here is how that, that faith is strengthened by reading what's been written. Why then has God written to us? He's written that our joy may be full. He's written to us because we know him and he desires that we know him more fully and more intimately and that we draw assurance of salvation from this experiential knowledge. Would you consider with me thirdly and finally, God has written to us that we may live triumphantly. He's written to us that we might live triumphantly. Note the words of chapter 2, verse 14. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. You are aware, of course, that the Christian life is a battle. There's no denying that. We'd be foolish to deny that. We battle against sin. And unfortunately, there are times when sin gets the best of us. There's no point pretending it's not so. John tells us, chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And you are aware, I'm sure, that you battle against the world. Perhaps one of the most challenging exhortations in this first epistle by John is what we find in 1 John 2 and verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We fight the battle of competing affections while we fight the battle with our flesh and we fight the battle over sin. And of course, you're aware that there are many deceptive forces blowing around that are authored by the devil himself. We've just come through one such deceptive force. Oh, they come and go. And the world is still here. The Christian is expected in all these things to be more than conquerors. And we are able to be more than conquerors through that word 
written to us. I have written to you, John says to the young men, and God says to us, because the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Good to note here a connection between the word of God abiding in us and our overcoming the wicked one. The verse indicates to us that we not only read the word of God, but we take it to heart and we memorize it. It abides in us. And we not only memorize the word of God, but we internalize the word of God by meditating upon it and by communing with God through it. I love the way God himself says it in Joshua Chapter 1 and verse 8 from Joshua. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Oh, I hope you are in the habit of memorizing God's word. Young people especially. While your memories are sharp, commit the word of God to your remembrance. That will serve you so well in the days ahead. I know I've shared this with you before when I worked in the printing industry. And uh, it seems like the nicotine addiction for some was so strong that you have to have smoke breaks. And uh, so sure enough, morning smoke break, afternoon smoke break. I always utilized smoke breaks. Not that I could smoke, no. Uh, smoking went away a long time ago. But uh, I called them Bible verse breaks or even psalm breaks. And today it's so easy. I, I used to carry, this is the, the pre-cell phone era, I used to carry little verse cards with me. These days, you don't even need them. You can store so many verses on your phone. Just look at all those verses of the day. And if you're not getting a verse a day, talk to Alan. You still sending out verses a day? Very good. And they come from any number of sources. Well, take a verse break instead of a smoke break and review your verses, ones that perhaps you yourself have highlighted and cite it to yourself and be able to quote it and internalize it. We know, of course, that Joshua did enjoy great success by leading the Israelites into the promised land, and that generation of Israelites did what the previous generation could not do. They took possession of what God had given them. They believed what the previous generation had trouble believing, and that is the truth that God delights in his people. Here is the key to living a life of triumph, then. We believe that God delights in us. I know it's easy to ask, why would God delight in me? I come short of his glory. I transgress his laws. My heart for him is not what I would desire it to be. How can I gain assurance that God delights in me? And the answer is that God has written to you. 
God bears testimony of his love to you and his acceptance of you and his delight in you by what he has written to you. And if you'll devote yourself to his word so that it may be said of you that the word of God abides in you, then you too will be strong and you will overcome the wicked one and you'll never be led astray by the winds of false doctrine that create wrong thinking. What a wonderful blessing then is the truth that comes to us from God. I have written unto you. He has written unto us that our joy might be full. He has written unto us that we might enter into communion with him. He has written unto us that we might live triumphantly and be overcomers of any and all things that would come between us and our God. With all of these benefits and blessings communicated to our, our souls from what God has written it certainly leaves us without excuse for our Bibles being closed books. Oh, may we indeed avail ourselves of the blessings that God intends for us to have by keeping close fellowship with Him through His written word. These things have I written unto you. Approach your Bible that way. The next time you open it, the next time you're uh, in devotion with God, take that book in hand and say, this is what God has written to me. And read it that your joy may indeed be full. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now, bring this meeting to a close. We thank Thee that Thou hast written to us. We thank Thee for Thy Word. May we take it, O Lord, as a personal word to our own souls. May we not simply look upon it as a record of the experience of others that walked close to Thee when Thou didst walk in this world, but may we understand the purpose for which Thou hast written to us, that we might know the joy of salvation, that we might know communion with our Savior, and that we might live triumphantly even in such times as these. So hear our prayers, Lord, and take our thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.